Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is William McCaskill. He is an associate professor in philosophy at the University of Oxford. Forbes 30 Under 30 Social Entrepreneur. He also co-founded the nonprofits Giving What We Can, the Center for Effective Altruism, and Y Combinator backed 80,000 hours, which together have moved over $200 million to effective charities. His new book is What We Owe the Future, which is published by our friends at Basic Books. William, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me on. It's an honor to have you here, William. And because of the nature of your book and all of the things that I want to talk about, I want to dive right in, uh, if that's okay with you. Um, first, you open your book with a thought experiment, imagining that a person were able to live the lives sequentially of every person who has ever lived. What is the purpose and what are the consequences of this thought experiment? Sure. So as you say, this thought experiment, it's about living all lives past, present, and future. So there have been about 110 billion lives in the past, about 8 billion lives today. How many are still to come? And I think if it were the case that we were to experience the totality of human experience, what would we be thinking about? Well, I think we would appreciate, you know, we would really have our eye on the future. Mm -hmm. We would think, oh, our life might be just beginning because you know, a typical mammal species has about 300, has about a million years in its lifespan. We've lasted through 300,000 of those years. So even on that estimate, we would have 700,000 years to go. If we don't go extinct, I think we could last that long. I think perhaps longer, hundreds of millions of years while the earth is still habitable. And so just as a teenager might think, wow, the most important decisions I make are the ones that will impact the whole course of my life. You know, whether I'm taking too large a risk that will imperil my future or the kind of values that will guide me, the kind of career I pursue. I think we too at the present day are like a kind of teenager where firstly, most of what happens will happen in the future. Most human experience is yet to come. And secondly, what we do today can really impact the entire course of that long run future. And those two things are what this book is about. Absolutely. Thank you very much. And for our listeners, William, can you please define the term long-termism? Sure. So long-termism uh, is the view that positively impacting the long-term future is a key moral priority of our time. So it's about taking seriously just the sheer stakes involved when it comes to the future uh, and looking for what are the things that we're doing or will do in our lifetimes that might impact not just the present, but the very long run, and then trying to take steps to put civilization onto a better trajectory and make a better world for our grandchildren and for their grandchildren in turn. Absolutely. Thank you so much, William. Um, I now want to talk about clean energy. Uh, if everyone in the world started driving an electric vehicle or riding a bicycle today, as opposed to driving a gasoline-powered automobile, uh, 
But what would be the effects on both our climate here on Earth and our average lifespans as human beings? Sure. So if there was just this huge movement towards, you know, personal consumption changes to reduce our carbon footprints, you know, that would have an impact, a significant impact. Maybe it would reduce our total carbon emissions by 20% or something. Uh, however, that's only 20%. There would still be vast amounts of emissions that are not being avoided. Emissions from agriculture, from the creation of cement, from heavy duty transport, and that accounts for most emissions. And what are, the, what are those emissions doing? Well, they're warming the planet, as we know, which will be this enormous catastrophe, afflicting in particular the, the global poor, who were not the ones to contribute to this problem. It's also just literally killing people every year. The particulates from fossil fuel burning kill an estimated 3.5 million people every single year just because of the pollution alone. And so these kind of personal consumption changes are just not sufficient, unfortunately. What we need to do is invest very heavily in clean technology, where that's alternative fuels, uh, such as alternative energy sources, obviously wind, solar, solar nuclear, moonshots as well, like uh, what's called super hot rock geothermal or enhanced geothermal. Um, and also alternative fuel sources like hydrogen or ammonia uh, that can replace um, fossil fuel burning for things like shipping, uh, air, air flight, long distance transport. It's only if we do that that we're ultimately going to be able to get to a net zero world. Yeah, absolutely. And William, um, do you believe we still have time to reverse the potential for catastrophic climate change? Uh, I absolutely believe we have time to reverse it. And I actually think the last few years, the last five years, has been an optimistic one. Uh, uh, just yesterday, I had coffee with um, David Wallace Wells, author of The Uninhabitable Earth. And uh, he agrees with me. Turns out, actually, he's more optimistic on climate change than I am now, because we have seen ambitious pledges from uh, places like the EU and China to get carbon emissions down uh, to zero by 2050 or 2060. We've seen per capita emissions decreasing in the richest countries like the UK and the US. We've seen enormous decrease in the cost of uh, clean technology and clean energy like solar panels, which are down 100, I think it's by a factor of 170 since the 70s. Um, that's the cost uh, to get a, a joule of energy. And just recently, just last week, we saw one of the most important pieces of climate legislation in all of history, certainly the most important one in uh, US history, uh, which is part of the Inflation Reduction Act, and was almost $400 billion of spending on clean energy, um, which is just exactly the sort of moves that we need. And so for sure, there are still going to be major negative impacts we're certainly, I'm just confident we're going to get to at least two degrees of warming. My best guess is more like three. That will kill millions of people. That will result in major damages. Um, nonetheless, the prognosis was looking considerably more dire, even just five years ago. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much, William. Speaking of climate change, what do climate change, slavery, and artificial intelligence 
have in common relative to long-termism? So uh, it's a great question. And I think all of climate change, slavery, and artificial intelligence are examples of areas where we can take actions to positively impact, not just the short term, but the long term too. And they're also examples of a phenomenon that I describe as kind of moments of plasticity followed by later rigidity. So in the case of climate change, uh, Bill McKibben, the leading environmentalist, makes this argument that we knew about the fundamentals of climate change, the fundamental mechanisms, and even quantitatively the amount of warming that we should get for a certain amount of emissions. Actually, at least all the way back in 1896 from Spanish and certainly in the early decades of the 20th century, we start to understand the greenhouse effect um, or the, the name greenhouse effect. And sure, okay, maybe we didn't know, but certainly it was on the radar, something that was a risk. By the 60s and 70s, this was really starting to get taken seriously. But the kind of wave of activism we've seen, movement in this direction, is really only in the last few decades, which is even when most emissions have occurred. And so what McKibben argues is that Earlier on, things were more flexible. Climate change had not yet been politicized. We had more time to steer the world in a direction off fossil fuels in a way that would have been like less, you know, less disruptive, more smooth. And he suggests, well, we actually missed this moment, or at least one moment of plasticity with climate change. We are now seeing that moment of plasticity with respect to artificial intelligence, because at the moment, People aren't really aware of how fast developments in artificial intelligence are going, but many machine learning researchers are starting to sound the alarm bell to say, look, this is one of the fastest, fastest moving areas of technology. It is going to have a major impact in our, on our world, and we should be thinking carefully on how we can ensure that we get the benefits without the costs. Then you mentioned slavery. Um, and so I think we're in that moment of plasticity for AI. Then, uh, yeah, with slavery and its abolition too, I think, again, uh, the historian of abolition, Christopher Leslie Brown, argues that there was a moment of plasticity after the um, American War of Independence, where essentially Britain felt like it had lost status on the world scene and it wanted to regain some sort of moral self-image such that it could look down on the United States. And that was a moment of plasticity that the abolitionist campaign took advantage of in order to move the British Empire from the major, or at least one of the major uh, slave trading colonial empires to an empire that instead um, not only abolished slave trading and then slave owning in its own territories, but then sought to stamp that practice out worldwide. And I think in all of these cases, these are impacts that last, you know, not just decades or a year or more, but potentially centuries, thousands of years. Absolutely. Thank you so much, William. And we will return uh, to some of these topics in just a moment. But first, listeners, we are going to take a short break here for a word from our sponsor. And then I will be right back with William McCaskill. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. 
With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with William McCaskill, author of What We Owe the Future, which is published by our friends at Basic Books. William, I want to talk more about artificial intelligence. Uh, I believe in your book you state that the most powerful computer at present currently has the processing power of an insect's brain. How long do you believe it will be before artificial intelligence catches up with or even surpasses the power of a human brain? Sure. So um, to be clear, the the claim I'm making is that of the leading the kind of largest artificial intelligence models that have been trained, they have the power of an insect brain, um, kind of computational power. The largest computers today, the biggest supercomputers, probably actually have the computational power of something like the human brain. But training a model requires even more computation again. Uh, I think if you're projecting um, uh, advances in computing power and increasing investment in this area, you get the, and with kind of best guess estimates from neuroscientists on uh, how much computation the brain does, you get a conclusion with great uncertainty that we will be training AI systems that have about as much computing power as the human brain in about 10 years. And I'm not yet claiming that, you know, that will, automatically mean this like enormous disruption to the world, but at least means we should pay, be paying a lot of attention where if you can imagine now, in order to produce a new worker, a new scientist, an engineer, a new soldier, uh, it is not merely that you have to have more children who then become adults and stay in them. You can just manufacture them in the same way that we manufacture iPhones. I think it's hard not to say that, okay, that's at least potentially this enormous transformation in the world that we should be paying a lot of attention to. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, to return to climate change for a moment, how do you draw a line between gambling, professional gambling specifically, <laughs> and approaches to climate change and where it may be heading? Sure. So the connection between the two is. Uh, this idea that's been developed um, for many years now known as expected value theory. And this is a theory of how, and that's extremely well accepted uh, among people who work on the topic about how to make decisions correctly in the face of uncertainty. And the idea is that you take the probability of different outcomes, you look at their value, and you multiply the value with a probability to get kind of expected value. Uh, so supposing I say, if you give me $1, I will flip a coin. And if it's heads, you get $3. If it's tails, you get, no, you get nothing. Does it make financial sense for you to take that bet? Um, here's the argument that it does, which is that, well, you have a 50-50 chance of getting 
50% times three is $1.50. So in expectation, which is this technical word, you will make money by taking the bet. One way of thinking about this is supposing that we did this gamble over and over and over again. Would you become a rich man or would you become poor? And you would become rich because your average winnings would be $1.50. Um, sorry, your average winnings would be 50 cents. That is uh, $1.50, which is your expected winnings minus the $1 cost. And this is, I think, a very you know, simple way of thinking. I think it's um, very well justified. It's not how human brains naturally think about things. And I think when we're making decisions, I mean, really about anything, but in particular with issues that will impact the long-term future, it is just um, crucial that we think in these terms. So take the example of climate change. Many people who are on the skeptical side, they say, look, there's so much we don't know. The science isn't yet settled. Um, we don't know how much emissions will be. We don't really know like how... Um, uh, those emissions will convert to warming. We don't know how warming will convert to damages. And I'm happy to grant, for the sake of argument at least, yes, there's an enormous amount we don't know. But that doesn't warrant an inaction because uncertainty cuts both ways. And in the case of climate change in particular, uncertainty, I think, makes the case for action stronger, not less strong. Where uh, I give the analogy of if I was jumping off a building, and I said, it's okay, you shouldn't worry, because I don't know how far I'll fall. Maybe it's one story, maybe it's a hundred, who knows? That would not be a good argument. And it's the same is true in climate change. Like, maybe it's the case that the whole thing was a, a what Brits call a damp squib, um, something that just is not very important in the end. We get like, you know, one degree of warming, 1.5 degrees of warming, and, you know, it's bad, but things are okay. Okay, that's a good outcome. We've got to look at a bad outcome too, where maybe our models have actually just really underestimating um, the scale of emission, scale of kind of temperature response that we get or the size of the damages. Maybe it's more like 4.5 degrees, which would be like an utter, utter disaster. And it's actually, when we're taking all of that uncertainty into account, it's worrying about those worst case outcomes that is the bigger deal. Absolutely, thank you so much, William. Um, what are the positives and negatives in the rapid progression of technologies and ideas in fields such as biotechnology or artificial intelligence? Sure, so technology, um, I mean, on average, is enormously beneficial for the world. You know, we live much better lives um, in general around the world. And that's, you know, the vast majority of people that's true of compared to a few hundred years ago, because we have things like anesthetics and because we are able to travel more, um, we have better nutrition. However, technology comes with risks too. Our ability to harness the energy from splitting the atom, that gave us nuclear power. It also gave us um, the atomic bomb. And future technology, I think, uh, will, many of which will be kind of dual use in that same way. So let's just take uh, advances in biotechnology. So we already have the power to um, alter the properties of viruses and upgrade their destructive potential, such as by making them more transmissible or by making them more deadly. That ability will only get more, only get stronger um, and only get easier 
over the coming years. And once within a world where either the ability to access um, such technology, you know, the ability to kind of upgrade a virus is something that any hobbyist can do in their garbage. That would be a very scary world. Or if there was um, increasing military tensions and large-scale bioweapons programs uh, were used to really turn this technology to create new weapons. I mean, we have seen, the USSR had a bioweapons program with 60,000 people at its peak. This could happen. And I think that advanced bioweapons with engineered viruses could have destructive power far, far greater, even than the worst nuclear weapons. And so we should appreciate these advances in biotech can be amazing. They give us um, vaccines. They give us, um, uh, yeah, they cre help create kind of life-saving medicines. However, they can be used for bad too. And so what we want to do is just have a responsible and careful attitude to this where we try to not invest in the most dangerous aspects of this technology, sensibly regulate it, um, and proactively advance technology that can defend against future pandemics, um, such as early detection, such as advanced personal protective equipment. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, William. Um, I want to be clear before I ask this question that I'm asking this question with absolutely no agenda. I'm just curious about how ideas coexist. Um, yeah. I want to return to the opening of your book for a moment and the idea of long-termism. Uh, the first lines of your first chapter are, quote, future people count. There will be a lot of them. We can make their lives go better. End quote. And this is very true. Um, recently here in the United States, we've had the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade, which affects a woman's right to make decisions about her body when she is pregnant. There are a lot of questions about when life begins for an unborn fetus, etc. By your logic, if we are to live our lives thinking about the future, unborn and unconceived people, does this then jibe with the Supreme Court's leanings that abortion should not be legal as fetuses are further along the way to being future people than a theoretical person who will live in, say, a thousand years? I don't think it does. So I'm pro-choice. I don't think the government should interfere with a woman's reproductive rights. Uh, and yeah, it's a, it's a, I mean, I was very sad about the Supreme Court ruling. And it's unfortunate that the pro-life activists use rhetoric that is uh, superficially similar to some of the things that one might say when talking about the interests of future generations. Um, but crucially, I am thinking about, you know, our children and their children. I am thinking about like future generations to come. I'm not making the claim in any way that life begins at a, per, you know, a, a particular point in time. And that's the crucial issue that is kind of on either side of the abortion debate. Yeah, thank you. And to be clear uh, for everyone, I agree with you, William. I just uh, wanted to see yeah. how those <laughs> two uh, different outlooks mesh. Um, well, finally, uh, these issues that we have discussed, um, a couple of things that we haven't approached um, are value lock-in and technological stagnation. Uh, what are the dangers surrounding these issues and how do we circumvent them? Sure. So value lock-in is the idea that moral progress might stall before we reach the very best moral views. And I think it's easiest to see this with an extreme example, but think of a little bit of counterfactual history. 
suppose that the Nazis had won World War II, and suppose they managed to just keep growing in power, and in fact succeeded at their aims of creating a world government in line with their fascist ideology and implementing a thousand-year reign. That would have been an utter catastrophe. And much of the book, I talk about the risks of global catastrophe in the sense that you know, large swathes of the population or even everyone dies. There are other sorts of catastrophe too. And being ruled by the wrong, you know, the wrong values being dominant is, a, is every bit as much of a catastrophe. And it's something that we've seen kind of over and over again in the past. And uh, it's a worry I have about the future too. It was only 20 years from the formation of the Nazi party in a democratic country to the start of World War II with a Germany as a dictatorship under Hitler. And if we got to a state, if we entered a state where there was a world government with a totalitarian fascist ideology, we might never get out again. And the future could be not one of flourishing where people are free to live their lives according to their conceptions of the good, but instead is one of perpetual totalitarian dystopia. And that's something I'm really scared of. Uh, on the technological stagnation side, um, so, you know, I think there's uh, two plausible ways the future could go. Um, depending on AI, uh, it could be that technological progress goes much faster than we've even seen in the past. But that might not happen. Instead, it might be that AI, you know, it just doesn't pan out um, in the way it might look, it might pan out. And instead, we start to stagnate technologically, where there are rates of technological progress that we've seen, they slow, and then we plateau. Now, would that be a bad thing? I think the key reason I focus on as to why that would be bad is that it would extend what's called the time of perils. So we have lived under a threat of nuclear war since 1945, essentially. And I think it's in significant part luck that we've never seen a nuclear war. If we just stayed at the current level of technology, um, current level of society, like certainly societal structure, then it would only be a matter of time before there was an all that nuclear war, an utter catastrophe. And so in general, I think we are not currently at a sustainable level of technology, one that we could just stay at this level forever. I don't think the next level where we have biotech, bioweapons either is gonna be sustainable. So I think we need to get to that point, to a safe place, uh, what my colleague Toby Ord calls place of existential security, where we have the technological power and the wisdom to guard against all of these, all of these threats. Absolutely. Thank you, William. And I actually do have one final question. Um, if people are out there listening uh, to this interview, reading your book, um, and they are now inspired to take action to protect quality of life uh, for people who are living uh, 100, 1,000, 10,000 years from now, um, when and how uh, should they take action? What should they do? I think there are two key things to do. The first is use your money. So I encourage people to give at least 10% of their income to the causes that they think are most important and most cost-effective. And I set up an organization called Giving What We Can to encourage people to do that. We've now had over 7,000 people take this 10% pledge. It's, this, it's the easiest way for anyone to make an enormous difference in the world. Um, the second way to do good is with your time, in particular with your career, where that's, you know, what you do in your career is kind of the biggest decision you make in your life. 
and I set up another organization, 80,000 hours, uh, 80,000hours.org, that provides extraordinarily in-depth advice on how you can use your career to have a big impact, focused in particular on these issues that will impact the long term as well as the present. And in it has a podcast, the 80,000 hours podcast, and also provides one-on-one um, -on -one coaching and advising to people um, who are particularly keen to switch and move on to something where they really think they will make a big impact to the world. So yeah, I'd encourage anyone to look up giving what we can in 80,000 hours. Absolutely. Thank you so much, William. And thank you for writing this wonderfully important book. Listeners, I've been speaking with William McCaskill, author of What We Owe the Future, which is published by our friends at Basic Books. William, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. Once again, I would like to thank William McCaskill for joining me. Copies of What We Owe the Future can be ordered from www.explorebooksellers.com. I would also like to thank our sponsors, Libro FM Audiobooks and Quail Ridge Books. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.